0: The Association of Mature American Citizens is an organization dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending our freedoms and securing our nation's future. Plus, Membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, entertainment, and special insurance rates regardless of your age. If you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience in our quest for conservative principles. Sign up now at AMAC.us/victor A-M-A-C and for a limited time, get a free gift membership for someone who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference with AMAC. Join today at amac.us victor and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I am Jack Fowler, the host but The Star, The Namesake. That's Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. And, you know, Victor was on the, the recent Hillsdale College cruise, and he gave a really, really interesting uh, talk while he was there, and it's been published in Imprimis, which is the, gosh, I think everyone in America gets Imprimis, Victor, I think about 67 million people receive this. But this came in the mail a couple of weeks ago. I've been meaning to get uh, Victor to talk about this particular um, uh, essay or speech, and it's on imperialism. And we will get Victor's thoughts on that, the new issue of strategica, There's hopefully some lunacy going on at um, some American colleges, all that and more. Right after these important messages, do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzlestick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzlestick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags Give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owner. Head over to muzzlestick.com, that's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. At the Victor Davis Hanson Show. But Victor, this um, was very happy when in my mailbox here comes in primus and there's you right on the cover. And uh, Imperialism Lessons from History, this is the name of the of the talk you gave. And it's based off of this idea that some suggest today that America is behaving imperial, imperialistically. And of course, Victor, you go back through uh, history and especially with the Athenians and others and discuss what it means to be imperialistic. And does how does America compare in these historical terms? Would you tell us about this uh, really, really engaging essay?
1: What, we were on the Mediterranean this summer, and I was asked to speak about what we were witnessing in places such as Istanbul, and um uh, cyprus and greece that were all either subject to some sometimes in their history to imperialism are themselves imperialist okay. because we were looking at all these different castles on roads and who built them the venetian empire the genevieve etc etc and i was trying to get a coherent theme that would bind all of them. And basically, it was that the imperial power There's in history, when you have a particular type of state that has a successful formula, and that means it produces goods and services that are not commiserate with other populations of equal size, but they're wealthier, or they have a superior method of, of the military, or they're, energized by their political system or their religion in the case of the Ottomans or the Caliphate or whatever the particular reason. And they start to spread that, that culture because they are convinced either of one or two, but mostly a mixture that, A, their superior culture will help other people, what Kipling called to his to now modern ridicule the white man's burden. He was talking about, northern Europeans going throughout Africa and India and supposedly enlightening people with you know, constitutional government or um, habeas corpus or clean water or medicine, whatever the particular uh, defense was of imperialism or uniform language and culture in the case of, in, in, of India. Or they feel that more nakedly, And this tends to be something like Hitler and the Third Reich that they need from people who have not been successful like they have. Those people then don't have a right to the resources or population that they enjoy. And therefore, the Third Reich has a right to go into Ukraine and take their food or they have a right to go into um, North Africa and take their oil because they're using it for their own superior purposes. And most of them, it's a mixture of both. And usually the imperialist power has a whole facade of, you know, well-being and humanitarianism that disguises or veneers their more uh, self-interested agenda. But the weird thing about it was I was trying to point out as well, is it doesn't really pencil out the amount of money Whatever the motive is when they go overseas and they set up, you know, uh, extra, uh, you know, consular officials or prefets or tribunes or whatever, they send people their whole machinery overseas, like Rome, or they have uh, episcopoi if you're Greeks, they send them out. The cost never is really recaptured. So you have Britain. That in 1850 was really almost right at the you know the cusp of the industrial Revolution. It was the wealthiest country in the world that controlled, I guess, seventy percent of the world's landmass. But Dick, Dick, Dickens was writing a he was writing David Copperfield or bleak house or great expectations about an, uh, a hollowed out London. Or you have the United States as we speak, and we've got 600 military bases all over the world. And you look at San Francisco or the border, and you wonder, why? why are we doing this? And you can say the same thing about the Ottomans. They were killing people, and they spread in the Balkans, and they were doing all these things, but at their core they were hiring Venetians and Genovese and Jews and Greeks to run Constantinople because they, uh, which was, you know, which would become Istanbul. Not till the twenties was that term used, but nevertheless, they didn't have a viable core at the center. And that's because I think a lot of the expenditures. So uh, that's something that, that contradiction I think was kind of a warning I wanted to, to suggest that uh, and I, I quoted that great poem by, I think it was 1902, by uh, Kipling at the grand jubilee ceremony of recessional. You know, he's looking at the British Imperial fleet at the turn of the century and it looks so majestic and he, and he's basically predicting quite accurately that this is the high point and it's going to go downhill and that nobody appreciates what Britain brought to the world and it's too costly and, and you have to believe. and. The British population no longer believes in that imperial uh, burden. And so I think that's what's happening in the United States. People are saying, we don't want any more optional wars because the people hate us. The more we think we do well for them, they hate us.
0: You, you tied it to East uh, East Palestine in the peace, victory.
1: Yes. I mean, the people, if you think about it, it's kind of like Dickensian London where The crown wasn't really interested in the people lived on the streets and the slums of London. They were more interested in getting a railroad to work in India. And so we, we have all these people in East Palestine and they're deplorables, irredeemables chump. That is, they're the lower white working class that did not vote as they're supposed to for Joe Biden or the left wing agenda. And they have this toxic fume, which is a no-go zone for the left. I mean, my God, it's proof of the uh, the industrial complex poisoning all of us. So, uh, that happens and Biden doesn't show up. And you want to say, well, wait, you're not showing up to these people? Why is that? These are the people who are engaged in the imperial project. Little towns like this in the Midwest, they're sending their sons and daughters, especially their sons, to god-awful places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and they die at twice their numbers in the demographic. So when the coffins come home from war zones, 75% of the dead are white males, but they're only 35% of the population. And so these communities have given their all. And yet you have nothing but contempt, but yet you rely on them for your imperial ambitions. And that's the point I was making. And uh, the same thing about the Roman army. One of the reasons that during the Roman expansionism, you were sending out these legionaries all over the Mediterranean and beyond, the Persian Gulf, all the way to Scotland. But when you looked at the actual Italian countryside from which this group originally came from, it was being destroyed. Because the more conquests that occurred, the more slaves, one million in Gaul alone, were being flooded back in to Italy. And then absentee small farmers were in the legions. And so, people bought up the land cheaply and they used slave labor that was free, basically, very inexpensive. And it became a lot of foodier corporate agriculture. And the whole basis of the whole agrarian ethic of the Roman Republic vanished. And so... When you look at what we're doing, and I was just seeing, the, just to update that article, my gosh, we are it's not that we're just giving, you know, Patriot Battles or HIMARS to Ukraine. We're into now uh, getting into their administration and their medical care, and we're doing all of these things as, as we were doing in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if that's true, I wish they'd come to my hometown and go to the emergency room, and they, it needs help. And again, I don't want to hear any more elites uh, give people, shake their finger and say, we can do both. That is so stupid. It's only 120 billion. Are you an idiot? For 120 billion dollars, we're we're five percent of the of the, you know, five percent of the Pentagon budget gives us 50 percent destruction of Putin. OK, then let's do both. Let's let's all go on to Moscow, and let's first just close the border. It's cheap. Just do it. It's not a matter of money. It's a matter of psychology. You don't want to do it, but you do want to go over there and patrol that border. But you want to do what to the Ukrainians what you're doing for your own people, and then you make fun of people and make that argument, and you say, oh, look at the arithmetic. It's just a minuscule amount of money. We're not talking about money, to simulate Joe Biden, we're not talking about money. We're talking about what? We're talking about attention span. You spend more of your time worrying about the Ukrainian disputed borders that have been disputed from time immemorial than you do about the U.S. border. And you tell us why first, and then we'll go on to Moscow. You just tell us why you're doing that. And they won't. And they won't. And I get letter, I got a letter from a very person I have a great admiration. And he was basically saying, how can you go on Laura, I mean, you go on Laura Ingraham and she's going on and on about Ukraine and you don't object. Well, first of all, my segment had nothing to do with Ukraine. And I have objected before in a very pleasant, you know, we had a pleasant exchange. But I have enormous respect for it. She makes arguments. She's not an isolationist. She just tried to make an argument, like I just said, that it's a matter of resources. And everybody's well, there's no resources, Victor, going over to Ukraine. Yeah, there is. You know, we emptied a quarter million shells from Israel, artillery shells to send over there. We're short six years of javelins. And the Chinese want this thing to go on and on and on. But more importantly, for the amount of time and energy we spent on Ukraine. We could have had a wall from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf, and there would be no problem right now. And we wouldn't be spending billions of dollars in New York, and we wouldn't be kicking veterans out of hotels to put illegal right. in- immigrants on. And I wouldn't have to walk last night and meet somebody in my own orchard that I had no idea who they are. And they're on an electric bicycle, of all things. and They don't speak a word of English. And I try to ask him in my broken Spanish, why are you on my property? And what are you doing with an electric bicycle riding in a vineyard? I mean, an orchard. And that's every day. And it's chaos. And it's kind of like agrarian Republican Rome versus Latifundia. And that's what it is now. These people don't care. They don't care at all. There's something really sick about this country right now. And that is this... This La Jolla to Seattle, uh, Boston to Washington corridor mentality. And it's all based on letters after your name and titles and where you went to college and how much money. and you, But not just how much money, how you spend it. You know, if you have to have the perfect taste, you have to know certain things and they don't care about other people. And they have these certain agendas The net zero agenda, the ESG agenda, the DEI agenda, the trans agenda, uh, the Soros uh, critical legal theory agenda, the critical. They don't care about how that trickles down to other people and ruins our lives because they think they they have no say in a democracy because these people are their moral and intellectual superiors. And they give us lectures about democracy. Democracy dies in darkness. Why they try to kill it and strangle it. They do it all the time, whether it's hiring, as I said, hiring Twitter, or it's trying to flip the electorate to 70% absentee ballot. They they don't believe in democracy. And they're starting at least to write that now in New York Times op-eds and stuff.
0: I was shocked. Locally, uh, they had to cover the uh, absentee ballot scandal in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in the Democratic primary. They'll do it to themselves; it just comes naturally. But uh, what we've talked many times before, Victor, or you've you've shared wisdom. Whatever they're bitching about, uh, that's projection. That's actually what they're what they're doing. Um, but speaking of uh, Russia and the war, we we should we should get to um, the new issue of. Of strategic. But before that, I'd like to take a moment, Victor, to to recognize uh, one one of our relatively new sponsors for the Victor Davis Hanson Show. That's AMAC. AMAC is the Association of Mature American Citizens. I am a member myself, and it proudly champions Americans' rights to free speech, religious liberty, and the Second Amendment. AMAC defends parents' rights to protect their children, and is fighting to restore America's election integrity. With more than 2 million members nationwide, imagine that, 2 million, dues-paying members, that's pretty damn important. AMAC is pro-faith, pro-family, and pro-freedom. Yep, I'm proud to be an AMAC member, and I encourage you to join today. So let's send the AARP a strong message that they don't represent conservative seniors, even though I'm 63, I, I guess I'll qualify. <laughs> Join AMAC today at A-M-A-C, AMAC, AMAC.us forward slash Victor. That's AMAC.us forward slash V I C T O R. We thank AMAC for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hansen Show. And I, I had a little exchange uh, earlier this week with Rebecca. Weber, the email exchange. I really like Lebe- Rebecca. She's she runs Amac. She, uh, her father founded it. and She's running it extremely well. I think you were on. We
1: were you on her podcast uh, yes. the other day, Victor. I yeah. just did a podcast with her.
0: Yeah, great, great soul. Oh, no, thanks, Amac. So, Victor. Uh, yeah, the new issue of of uh, Strategica is out. It's titled "The Russian Way of War." As the typical issue of Strategica, to remind our our listeners, it's the uh, online publication that you oversee. You're, we'll call you the editor in chief. There, Victor uh, comes out, you know, every month or two months or so with an important uh, issue. Uh, participants and the writers are are uh, military historians and, and historians who add their perspective to important pressing issues. So the the pressing issue here is ty- "It's the Russian Way of War." That's the theme of this issue. And of course, Victor, you can talk about it's your show. You can talk about whatever you want. But I would say the the lead piece and this is by Ralph Peters, and our listeners may remember Ralph, with Colonel in the in the arm. I think it was the Army. He uh, he he used to be on Fox frequently, but he's got a piece called "The Crusade Against Ukraine: Eurasia's Last Medieval Power at War." It was a long title, but it's in his analysis of the psychology of Russia and the history of Russia at war predating, you know, we've, the Soviet Union, how Russia acts when a war is afoot, uh, its strengths, its weaknesses, it's quite opinionated piece, I must say, and, and really well written. But anyway, Ricky, your thoughts on that or any of the other
1: yeah, well, we uh, well, articles of this We were, were trying to different. get a diverse group of opinions, and I have one that I wrote a little earlier called "Have We Forgotten the Russian Way of War?" At the bottom of those three columns, one is by Ralph Peters, one is by Peter Mansoor, uh, very bright guy, a colonel was, uh, I think, a chief of staff for David Petraeus. Uh, he was number one in his class at West Point. And he's writing about um, why the Russians fight the way they do. And and finally, Kyron Skinner is talking about it. There are a lot of commonalities on those three in the one that I wrote. And they're pretty – Ralph Peters, pretty – he he outlines them pretty clearly, but all of them do. And it's don't underestimate the Russian army. It is incompetent in two aspects. In the initial phase of any war, anywhere – and it's not as competent abroad. So when it goes into the Winter War in Finland in 1939, or when the Russian Navy goes all the way over to Japan in 1905, or uh, they go into Poland in 1921, or they they are not they're laggard when they go into Poland in 39 compared to the Nazi invasion or they go into Afghanistan, they don't do well. Or at the beginning of a war on their home soil, whether it's Charles XII or Napoleon's invasion or the German Nazi invasion, they don't do well in the beginning. But they have a certain resilience, and that is they have a huge number. They're able to mobilize a lot of people. And they are oblivious, not, I mean, not completely, but they're oblivious in the Western sense to casualties. So dead and wounded that would have destroyed another army did, does not destroy the Russian army. We saw that in, from June 22nd, 1941 until Christmas, where they lost 4 million combat and probably 10 million population, and yet they held the Germans off. And so... When we look at Ukraine in that context, yes, Ukraine is doing wonderfully. They stopped the Thunder Road capture of Kiev. But in the wider context, as incompetent as Russia was, you saw that train of vehicles where just people were sitting on the hoods while their tanks and trucks were being blown up. And as bad as their generalship is and as poor morale they have, at some magic point, Mother Russia kicks in and they start to firm up when they get to an existential point. And so if applied to Ukraine, it means, yes, when they try to go all the way to Kiev, they're not going to do very well. If they're fighting to take more of Ukraine... They're not going to fight very well. They're going to have poor morale. They're not going to combine their armor with artillery, with air power. Technologically, they're always going to be a step behind Europe or the United States. However, you fight right in Ukraine, uh, on the Ukrainian border, right next to Russia, or in Crimea, where there's 70% of the people are Russian-speaking, ultimately, you're going to have a problem. And that's what's happening. And yet nobody said that would happen. And we had two alarmist views in this war. The one side said, oh, Putin's going to just take Kiev. I didn't think he would. And because of the, what I just said and the other side and then the other mis I think, misappreciation was, well, now that they they saved Kiev, they're going to have the spring offensive and it's on to Moscow. No, that's not going to happen either. Ralph Peters' version of that, and each one has different emphases, but his version's a little different. He makes a cultural argument. I think that's what you're probably that, referring right, to. Yeah, but right. But his argument is that the Soviets destroyed the tradition of Tolstoy or Pushkin or Dostoevsky or Catherine the Great. The Western tradition, the, the Russian Enlightenment, and or even you had kind of oh, the social nitsen and after what Communists had done, it's this is a different Russia now. It's and it's pretty bleak what he says. It's a tough, heartless, uh, and it doesn't have the cultural value that it used to. Is, am I misreading that? I think that's what he said, but and. He,
0: yeah, but he also, he, yeah, there's this. Uh, all, he also has some pre- thoughts about Putin himself. Like, uh, uh, we need to think what is mo- what's motivating him. Listen to him. Facts of what's happening on the ground are what they are. But what he writes this just simple. Sentence, what matters is what those at war believe, and he doesn't think that is being factored. Enough into the equations of of the U.S. Uh, you know backers.
1: But anyway, well, I guess the, the the contribution is he's trying to take the facts of the Russian military and its incompetence, and yet its doggedness, and he's trying to put it into a larger cultural, literary, uh, social environment. Our explanation. Yeah. So right. if I could just read, if I could find it, he says, uh, you know, Russian oligarchs may have had, may have splendid yachts and European mansions, as did many a czarist era nobleman, but their toys do not make them modern or Western. I think everybody can agree with that. Romantic admirers of Russians' contributions. Here's the controversial Romantic admirers of Russia's contribution to the arts miss the point that the DNA of those achievements was exterminated in the gulag, and and relevant here, not one of the artistic disciplines in which Russian authors or composers excelled was native to Russia, which remains a copycat culture, not a creative one. Heirs to endless grievances, a frustrated destiny, and ferocious envy of Western success. Russians can find neither peace nor place in the postmodern world. Historical time is out of sync between Moscow, Brussels, and Washington, Ukraine. We are not opposing a contemporary power. We face a sullen people trapped in the Middle Ages and led by yet another false messiah." I think It's a mouthful. Argue, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you could argue. That Russia was part of the Western Enlightenment, and that in certain areas of technology they were pretty sophisticated. They were backward compared to Europe, but not to the rest of the world. I know that when Hitler went in in 1941, there were elements of the T-34 tank that had been borrowed, or purchased, or stolen. I.e., the Christie suspension that we had underappreciated, which they adopted or the diesel engine from Germany, but the ability to mold all those components together and fabricate them in mass was something the Germans couldn't do. And the Germans discovered that when they when they met the T-34 or the Stalin tank or 155 millimeter huge batteries. So there was always something about Russian or the AK-47, the Kalashnikov rifle, there was always that element within Russia. And I think it's still there. And that's why they can make sophisticated drones. They don't just buy them from Turkey or Iran. They can make their own. And there are people in Russia that are very, very bright and they're very well educated. And there are there are pockets or areas of Russia that are very Western. So uh but Rao's point is different. I'm not going to argue with him. He just suggests that. We keep thinking that Dostoevsky's country should be like us, and they're not. They're more of a different, darker period of history, and that's what we're fighting. We have to understand that Putin represents a destructive culture, and it's not Tolstoy's culture that lost its pathway for a few years. And I think Peter Mansoor's is basically more empirical. Ralph's is very empirical, but I mean, it's just concentrates on. uh, Don't get caught up in the daily or weekly media hype or cycle. Look at the the long term. And that is. That the mistake strategically, tactically, um, technologically, that Russia makes is not all they're they're predictable, but they're not always an indicator of how things are going to turn out. And so his last two sentences are don't count the Russians out just yet for they time. And again, have proven their ability to suffer and survive. Undoubtedly, those two qualities are also part of the Russian way of war. And uh, so I think that's what people need to remember that when you talk about all the we, we have people where I work that are that have been telling us since March the war is just about over that the the spring offensive and I've re- right. re- read that in these columns by I mean I've been mean, you you look at Bill Kristol or Max Boot and it, and in March it was the Russians are going to collapse and they're going to get some kind of Ukrainian patent are Gwaderian and they're going to go all the way to Moscow. That was, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but that was this euphoria and it was just historically uh, ignoring the the terrain, the geography, the culture of Russia. Right. And nobody will fight for Putin. They hate him. His, his country, his, his regime is going to fall. Not if they don't see put, that they're fighting for Putin, yeah. what if they think they're fighting for a Russian tradition? And what if they think that when they look at the people they're fighting, they like them less than they do Putin? And that's possible. Just possible. I'm just throwing it out there that the average Russian mother who sends her son to a cauldron, which is a stupid, insane war. They should have never done it. But she still, when he's fighting, feels that the Western European American-backed Ukraine is not preferable to Putin. And that's, it seems like that is operative or the Russian army would have collapsed months ago as we were told that it inevitably would, but it didn't, yeah. and it's not collapsing now. And they're going to pour more and more resources. And when people say, well, we destroyed 50% of his in you know, I think the Bill Crystal group is running a lot of these ads. We destroyed 50% Republicans for Ukraine, I think it is. 50% of the uh, Russian military uh, at only 5% of our budget. Well, 50%, just say if you just use that loose pr- figure. So, if 144 people, let's say 50% of its wherewithal is gone, you got 122 people fighting a country that's got only 29 million people left. And you've got a lot of Europeans that just about had it because they're not up to this. And uh, yeah.
0: I don't get the armchair general drive, Victor, what psychologically the crystals and the boots, what has possessed them along the way to make them so passionate about blood?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, part of it was they have that evangelical, I don't mean in religious terms, but that evangelical, ecumenical... Uh, imperial vision that the United States is so morally superior in terms of their democracy that they have a burden, kind of a British nineteenth, to spread it everywhere, to democratize everybody and to teach them of the beauties of uh, American life. And we're going to talk in a minute about figures in Poland who look at us and say open borders critical legal theory, critical race theory, modern monetary theory, your popular culture, hip-hop music, uh, San Francisco. That's not what we want. And they hate that. And they can't believe anybody doesn't think that we're superior. So they were part of this uh, project for a new American century. Remember that, Jack, in the end of the millennium? At the beginning of the the 20th century. And the idea was that we – They were calling for the removal of saddam hussein in 1994 and 95 with a preemptive war and the idea was we were going to go in and i supported the iraq war but only in the context of after 9 11 and only afghanistan after 9 11 but theirs was a broader agenda that they wanted to americanize and democratize and in their computations they never really said well, who's going to do the fighting and who are these people? And do they have are they stakeholders in America?
0: Of course, the America they were wanted to spread around the world in 1994 is not the America they advocate for 30 years later. I mean, they're so hell bent on the whole leftist agenda. Also, the same armchair generals, Crystal and and boots uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, and they you know, are an abortion. They
0: didn't like that.
1: <laughs> and they're not people who say, I mean, David From from our former employer, I thought he wrote a, a very unfair article. You remember that? The disloyal Americans during the Iraq war. Yeah. Was Unpatri- the un- unpatriotic. Yes. And I didn't very agree true. with Pat Buchanan on a lot of stuff. And I didn't. I got attacked by paleos all the time for supporting Iraq, but I never said they were unpatriotic. They yeah. just felt that it was a waste of American resources and a cost-benefit analysis, yeah. and uh, so that's that's sort of we're trying. I'm trying to find. There's one other element we haven't talked about very quickly, and some of our listeners are saying, "Hey, Victor, you missed the boat because Ukraine for them is the successor to Russian collusion and Russian disinformation. So what they've been trying to tell us is. The Russians interfered with our elections and uh, elected Donald Trump. But you guys, you know, Mueller Mueller couldn't prove it. And so we went into the laptop and that laptop was manufactured in, in Russia. And it's it was dis. Uh, no. Well, we lost that one. But now now we can show how evil Putin was as if anybody ever said he wasn't. So for them, Russia and this is the left, too, because they are on the left now, these guys that were formerly neoconservative Republicans. This is the holy grail, the final Russian denouement. And the point that's so ironic about this is it was the left, it was the left in 2009 that criticized George W. Bush for his melt-toasty little sanctions against Russia for going into Georgia and annexing uh, Osatia. So they were the ones who pushed the fake jacuzzi button in Geneva, mispronounced, I think, uh, reset and in Russian, and then sold us on dismantling missile defense to make sure Obama was reelected by pandering to the Russians, uh, not selling Javelin missiles to the Ukrainians, cutting back on our oil so Russia would get rich, probably got rich, they were the ones that appeased russia and then suddenly when that all blew up they flipped and as you mentioned projection and they projected their appeasement and romance with putin mm-hmm. and and russia onto the conservative republicans on trump and then when you looked at the actual record it was i had a, a, an interview not too long ago with a foreign journalist and he said to me can you explain something to me in your country i said yeah why do they think that trump was soft on Putin compared to Obama and the rest, or Biden later. And he said, didn't he do? And we talked about what he did. He got out of an asymmetrical unfair missile treatment. He killed 200 mercenaries. Trump did. He fled, he flooded the world with cheap oil that Putin could not stand. He... he, was the guy who really put the the harsh sanctions on oligarchs? He was the one that said, "Don't to Germany, don't do the Nordstrom pipeline." He he was really tough on Russia, and compared to the earlier reset or Biden, where he said, "Hey, Vladimir, if you're going to hack our stuff, don't hack hospitals," or "Hey, if if if." Putin goes in; and it's a minor inf- offensive. So, uh, yeah, we're not going to do much. And Zelensky, hey, they're they're going to take Kiev, but we'll give you right out. Come on, go get on one of our planes. We'll just turn over the country, and we'll get you out of there. That was Biden, right? Yeah. So it's very strange.
0: Well, Victor, we're going to you know, talk a little more about that. If- a, a Polish minister, uh, you, you tipped, a, tipped off about that as a, as a topic, and there's some college-related stuff worth talking about. And we'll get to those topics right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued. At scs.georgetown.edu/podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, before we, we talk about, we'll st- stick to to um, uh, to Europe. I do want to uh, I do want to take a minute here to welcome back one of our sponsors from been on a couple of previous uh, podcasts, and that's Cardian Company. Cardian Company is a family-operated and nationally recognized fixed-income investment firm with more than 50 years of experience. If you want control of your financial destination and decisions, but you also want an experienced and knowledgeable person's guidance based on your risk tolerance and your financial objectives, well, then you, you just have to visit cartico.com. Generally, for investments of $5,000 and up, find the investment that's right for you by visiting cartico.com. That's C A R T yco.com One more time. C-A-R-T-Y-C-O.com. Cardi and Company. We thank them for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Victor, I, I saw many, it's got a lot of, a lot of uh, views and hits on various social media from last week, or maybe maybe within the last 10 days or so. A Polish minister, Dominic uh, Tarzynski, who was His English is better than my English. I think he was. I'm pretty sure he was talking at the European Union, and he was sticking it to the left who hate poles. Same people that kind of hate Hungarians. Why? Because they won't take in uh, the uh, the um, the migrants. (laughs) They're illegal aliens. By the way, Poland has taken in uh, two million. Uh, Ukrainians and help uh, them, but they have no. They don't bring in illegal aliens, terrorists. Their economy, the Polish economy, is uh, doing better than any other uh, economy in Europe post a COVID. The, Pol- the Poles are very, you know, proud. They've been bullied lately. Zelensky tried to bully the prime minister and attack the Poles. and it was kind of refreshing to see. Uh, someone defending the sovereignty of the country, defending the concept of borders in a, in in a country. So, uh, I, I, anyway, he, he reminded me a little bit Polish version of St. Nigel Farage, who who had the same kind of tone and humor and frankness with the European Union Parliament. Anyway, Victor, your thoughts about uh, Dominic uh, Tarzynski
1: Well. He's making this argument that for too long the Western European United States version of West of modern 21st Western civilization is the A successful and B the only model that works. and that is greater statism, lar- ever larger government, fixations on race and tribalism, open borders, globalist ecumenical ideas that were all uh, beyond the 19th century idea of parochial borders or common language, common people and uh, green mandatory green energy because of global warming is destroying the planet and the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechs who have a suffered a, uh, from 1939 to 45 under the Germans in World War II, even though their governments may have been aiding them, and then suffered from 45 all the way to 89 under communism. They know something, the Western Europeans really, they've got a better lesson. And they were the ones, remember as well, Jack, that during the Ottoman expansion of, say, 1400 to 1700, Eastern Europe and the Balkans were the shield of Western Europe that's where the ottoman wave broke and Europeans and they remember that from Greece remembers that the bulgarians remember that the serbs remember that the romanians the hungarians the poles siege of vienna etc so they have a very different history vis-a-vis western europe and and their view, and this Polish leader was articulating it, they feel that illegal migration ruins a country and that you have to have borders. You can't have unlimited ambitions to spread your culture all over the world. You have to have it in a finite time and place with historical roots and customs. And they believe that walls work. And they believe after seeing what totalitarianism does, they don't trust socialism as a economic model and they don't trust socialists who run it because they feel they're hypocritical and they're never subject to the, the disasters they inflict on others. And they do believe that there's nothing wrong with having polls that look like polls a hundred years ago. And they don't have to let in Africans and Asians just because people that live on the Mediterranean coast in big homes tell them to. And so the people in the United States and Europe hate their guts for that. And they hate them especially because their paradigms are more attuned to reality. So the world is looking at Italy and Greece being flooded and Spain with immigrants and the United States and Britain. And they're saying, yep, they are right, more correct than the grandees in the West. And then they're looking at tribalism and racial fixations and essence. And they're saying it doesn't work. Uh, the diversity uh, salad bowl approach does not work. Right. And then they're looking to creeping socialism and huge debt and on sustainable entitlements and national annual deficit, And they say it doesn't work and they're and they're they're more right than we are and so we used to make fun of them and it was kind of they're all right they're paleo right but the more that we fail in the west and the more that they don't fail that that paradigm of western civilization seems to be uh convincing more people that it's the true right and and they're much more religious so That's another point. We should really make the point that atheism, secularism, agnosticism is the religion of Western Europe and the United States. It's not of Eastern Europe. They believe in a transcendent Christianity. You have a soul and your soul is undying and its place in the hereafter depends on its corporal existence here and whether it was good or bad. And that's something that we just can't tolerate in the West.
0: He, d- he did say in his, in his talk, you know, we won eight elections. Our party or the parties with these philosophies and, and essentially sc- screw you to the EU that absolutely had he's no problem. We... Remember with Italy, they were just like, no, we're we're, we're 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 I think it was like 2015 or something. We're we're telling you who's going to run your country, who's going to govern your country. Yeah.
1: What he's saying <laughs> is who, who elected you people? Yeah. We, we we represent what polls want because we had elections and we keep. Keep running on these issues again and again and again, and we keep winning. But when you people have an election and you lose, you want to have an you want to have an election only until you until you win, and you don't let people out and you don't listen to criticism because you're anti-democratic, as all elite leftist groups are, and you believe you want to surrender European sovereignty to I don't know the Davos group or the United Nations or some unaccountable, corrupt organization. So yeah, I mean, they're they're very popular now, as everybody knows, and they're not failing, which our left said they would. And so when you look at Prague or Budapest, and then you look at parts of, you know, beautiful cities, but in the interior of London, or you look at uh, what's going on in the Paris suburbs, or out in Amsterdam, or San Francisco, or Minneapolis, or Los Angeles? You can make the argument that their paradigm is working better right. than
0: ours. You know, I'm not going to mention his last name. Our, our mutual friend Robert, who lives in London, is like, "I'm, get, I'm out of here." Uh, i the people realize it's not, not. Well, San Francisco is San Francisco, but uh, the great cities are trending that way. New York is, London is. Yeah, uh, uh, but but uh, Krakow is not, and Budapest is not.
1: Oh. Well, anyway, they Victor, are, they, they oh, are, okay. and, and these are these are cities that bore the brunt of World War II and the Soviet recapture of Eastern Europe and communism. They were destroyed by the Soviets uh, systematically uh, by communism, and yet here they are, and. I think everybody on the left and all Americans should just take a deep breath and look at San Francisco. And I know there's a writer. She was just, she was, I used to read her, I'll remember her name. And she was telling us how dangerous it is. And the New York Times hired her, Jack, and she's telling us how wonderful San Francisco is and how it's exaggerated. But take a disinterested view and just go there and walk around Union Square and Market Street in a long fisherman's wharf, and just just soak it in, and then remember the way it was. And that paradigm is what, that's the ultimate expression of progressive politics. It really is. Yeah. And just listen to what London Breed said in 2019-20 and what she says today. That's all you have to do. And just, it's easy to understand. Look at what Bill de Blasio did compared to Michael Bloomberg and Rudy Giuliani. And Eric Adams is now, does he think that Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg's New York is what he wants to revert to? Or does he want to revert to Bill de Blasio? Ask Eric Adams that, a man of the left.
0: Yeah. As you point out many times, it's easier to destroy quicker and easier
1: than to That's what California build. is. We. Yeah we're California the destroyer you take a you want to build a high speed rail 15 years 16 billion dollars not 1 foot of track is laid you can't do it you want to go up in the Klamath river and in the most sensitive ecosystem in the world blow up four dams and spend a half a billion dollars you can do it in a summer you just say we're going to do it we're going to destroy We're going to let this river run free. We're going to go back to pre civilization Yeah, let's do it. Well, maybe these guys will sue for screw up this. We're not going to listen to it. We're a liberal judge. We're not going to have those lawsuits. These are guys with power boats that have homes on the lake. These are old fossilized hydro guys. Get rid of them. These are farmers. Who cares about them? They do what they want when they want to destroy. You want to destroy Market Street? You can do it quickly. All you have to do is say, no more rules. They can live transit rules doesn't matter drug offenses doesn't matter let's destroy it, and that's what's so weird about them. They can't build anything. They they fight, they bicker, they regulate, they delay, they do everything, and they don't build high speed rails. You, I my hometown Jack, there's an on ramp. All they got to do is make an on ramp. Yeah. And they they can't even do it, and we got tra- uh, traffic backed up every all the way back a mile to get on the 99 freeway. They don't care. Yeah, I drive from Selma to Powalto. It's like Odysseus trying to get home from Troy to Ithaca. It is. I mean, I go down, oh, oh, detour, high-speed rail construction, uh, new bridge being built, go around, uh, da, 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 get back on, oh, oh, uh, pavement gone, do this, okay, oh, oh. On-ramp, close down, go down 10 miles to another one. Uh Uh-oh, two lanes on I-5, get behind a caravan of semi-trucks in both lanes, and then all the way. It's a four-hour odyssey. They They can't build anything. But, boy, you tell them, hey, destroy a mural at a school in San Francisco that was a classic, beautiful piece of artwork put during the WPA. They will destroy it in two seconds. Go into Golden Gate Park or something and destroy a beautiful statue of Cervantes. They can do that. And bam. And uh, let the and, forest burn and destroy thousands yeah, of you people. You want to have a beautiful pine and then just don't clean it up yeah. and just say climate change makes this inevitable and let it burn. Yeah. Aspen fire up in the central Sierra all of us were hiking for years. Hey, you better clean all this brush up. Better clean it up. Let the loggers come in and get this valuable timber. Nope. Goes up. Oh, climate change. We can't fight fires. Climate change. They are, they are the greatest destroyers of civilization around the left. They love oh. destroying what they inherited. But you ask them to build something. They can't do a freeway. They can't do a dam. They can't do a, high, a rail line. They can't do anything. Yeah. they sue, they sue, they regulate, they bicker, they fight, they accuse, they libel, but they they can't build. Yeah.
0: Well they commit they also commit crimes and then they get rehired and that's that's one of the final topics we're going to talk about Victor in the few minutes we have left and we're going to get your thoughts on this right after this final important message. <laughs> we're back with the victor davis hansen show quickly folks visit victor's official website the blade of perseus at victorhanson.com. I'm just talking about destruction and you'll find a link when you go to the homepage. page there it's a, you'll see on the right hand column a link for victor's forthcoming book it's out in may it's the end of everything how wars descend into annihilation and uh victor's talked about the themes of this book on this podcast today and and, and other podcasts. So, uh, do check that out and check, and realize when you click around the website and you're clicking on these ultra articles and they won't open for you. Well, you have to subscribe. Victor writes two or three ex- pieces exclusively every week for the Blade of Perseus. It's five dollars to subscribe and fifty dollars discounted for the year. Do that. You'll find links to various other pieces that victor's written for american greatness syndicated columns archives of this podcast many more things blade of perseus hey if you're on the um, on facebook uh vdh's morning cup uh search for that sign up unaffiliated but friendly fan club the victor davis hansen fan club you should join that and if you're on twitter slash x that is at vd hansen that's victor's handle so victor um that New York City professor from Hunter College, of some got some national attention a few months ago. Her name is Sheline Rodriguez. She's from the Bronx. I apologize folks. She's from the Bronx. She's the one that tried to disrupt a pro-life um, uh, you know table and uh, some student, student center uh, at Hunter College. And Hunter College is considered the elite, uh, college of the of the New York City uh, College system. Uh, so she was a teacher there. And because of what she did there and was caught on video, a New York Post reporter went to her apartment to to, you know, interview her about this. And she came out of the apartment with a knife and she held it across the guy's throat, threatened to threatened to, to uh, slit his throat and she was arrested. I I, honestly don't know what the hell happened legally. I don't think anything. But Cooper Union, famous college, where Lincoln gave one of his great speeches uh, before he became president. Cooper Union has hired her. Gosh, Victor, uh, if we did that, if one of our guys, if you did that, Victor, do you think some college would hire you to
1: teach? Uh. (laughs) No, I
0: know the answer. Go ahead, my friend.
1: Well, if she was a black conservative, let's say that Shelby Steele or Roland Fryer did that. They would not hire. She they'd be in jail for that. If it was a white male, they would be in prison for five years. Yeah. And she knows that and everybody else knows it. And that's why she did it, because she knew there she could fly off the handle and threaten somebody to cut his throat as a professor. She knew that. And she knows that she would be deemed edgy for it and she would get a job. And that's why she's leftist. And so a lot of our listeners say, I get this question a lot. Hey, Victor, why is 95% of the people you work with in academic leftist? leftist? I know that originally the idea of guaranteed, guaranteed uh, tenure and nine month, uh, month year work Nine months out of the year, and then no accountability. So nobody monitors if you're late for class or you miss office hours, and it's all peer review and faculty governance, where you're, it's rub my shoulder, I rub yours. Okay, I get that. That makes you unrealistic and utopian, and therefore leftist. But why are they able now to enforce all that so that normal people who go into it become and you know what the answer is that that you go into the university and you are confronted with a choice some little devil with a red union suit says hey just mouth all these crazy things and we brand you and when people see that brand you're protected And then the little angel says, but you can be honest and speak out. And then the little devil says, yes, and you will be fired and you will be tormented and you will be ostracized in this community. And that's that's a no brainer. So you have people tell you and I must get maybe a couple of letters a month where people will write me and say, I'm up for tenure. Do you have any advice on what I should say or do? Meaning. Can I just act like I'm a left wing nut for a while? Yeah. And I always say, do what you do for your family. But remember, when you play act, that that persona can become your real. You can't take right. off your, your costume. It can enter your DNA. And it's it, and I keep, you know, I don't yeah, want
0: Cherokee Indian even. Yeah, right. Yeah,
1: And I don't want to play the, play the act. I don't want to demonize formal students, former students, but I can tell you that. When I was at Cal State, I can see now I had a lot of students who were very conservative, not because I was conservative or my colleague, Bruce Thornton, because they felt they were from a rural conservative area. And we, you know, when you teach 10 classes, in a lot of years, I taught five a semester. And then you give ten, eight 8 to 10 to 12 independent studies a semester. You And you count the hours. You have no time from 7 in the morning to 7 at night, five days a week. And then you come home and correct papers and on weekends you try to write a book. And it was kind of an, a nutty existence, but right. we are doing wow. it for this for these students who are right. that, you know, you don't want to do your research. You don't want to do this. You want to build a program and teach kids to read and write and think and, and discover the wonders of Western civilization, their heritage. And when you do that, and then they're all successful, and then you start hearing that Student X then decided to become the diversity coordinator and student Y became an advocate of this radical thing. Then you wonder why they did it, because you knew them for five, six years, getting a master's and a master's, and they were superbly educated. Why? And that's the answer. I'm not saying they they would never take a, a knife, but they understand that when you're in this herd... Right. When you cross the river, you've got to be part of the herd. If you're the lone water buffalo, the lion picks you off and they don't want to be that lone lion. And yeah. so they make the necessary adjustments. And as I saw one student, student, I won't reveal their gender or name. They just said, you're not going to like what I become. But I had to. Okay, you had to. And I said, well, maybe I should become that way, too. And it'd yeah. be a lot easier. And yeah. all our conservative listeners are thinking, hmm, I'm at work and I get ostracized. Hmm, I speak out. Maybe I should just start praising Joe Biden and, and say that Professor Kendi's my idol. And so everybody has a Faustian bargain, and you have to be who you are and take the consequences. Yeah. But so that's why that professor was given a second, third, fourth chance from her felonious behavior. She knew it in advance. That's why she said she'll get a
0: fifth, sixth and seventh.
1: There's no deterrence. deterrence. That's why the DEI law school czar at Stanford University hijacked Judge Duncan's lecture with a pre- conceived and pre-written script and told him basically to shut up and sit down while she read a script off praising the people who were screaming and yelling and right. disrupting him. She thought that she had gotten the right to do that and they should have fired her at that moment. They, they put her on leave finally, but only because of alumni furor that cut, threatened to stop their donations and then she's left. But the reason she did that is because she understood the culture. And she yeah. took out a indemnity insurance, which means, hey, everybody, I'm allowed DEI leftist. Therefore, I can do what I want. And She'll Donald, land
0: on her feet, Victor. And uh, those Oberlin College uh, yes, administrators absolutely. who they, they ended up with plushy jobs in other institutions. They, they ran away to uh, to pots of gold. So
1: if, if anybody, Donald Trump harassed some woman 30 years ago. And had sex with her when he and she can't remember when it was or where it was. But if if it really did happen and it was against her will, then more power to her. But if Tara Reid is telling the truth that she was sexually penetrated by our president of the United States and that Senator Hirono told us during the cabinet, women must be believed. And Kamala Harris said she believed it. Then. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that Joe Biden has indemnity insurance, right? And that's the difference, and that's a powerful narcotic for a lot of people, career-wise.
0: Well, I don't own it, neither do you, and hopefully, we'll
1: never get we'll it.
0: Turn this, help turn this country around, so, Victor. We only have a minute or two left, and we have to conclude a little early today. I appreciate your tolerating. My stuff to the stuffy nose here. My, we appreciate our listeners for, for listening, no matter what platform you come to the Victor Davis Hanson show on. Thank you. Do visit Victor's website for me, civilthoughts.com. Go there, civilthoughts.com, and sign up for the free weekly email newsletter I write for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil. Many of you do and write me nice notes. I thank you for that. Uh, speaking of writing things, uh, if you listen on Apple or iTunes, Uh, You can rate the show and you can also leave comments. We do read the comments. I do. Victor does. And many of them are very kind. And here's one uh, from MJ. MJ from Fremont, Colorado, who writes uh, headline National Treasure. Professor, you are a national treasure. Your observations are insightful. Your wit, mordant, and your patriotism unimpeachable. I wish that we had a million more of you. May God continue to richly bless you and your efforts to reignite love of this greatest nation in history. Professor Hansen is the indispensable sage of sanity. Thank you, MJ. I don't know if you heard in the background. That was George, my dog. Thank you, George. For mm-hmm. <laughs> Victor, thanks for all the wisdom you shared today. And folks, we, we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hansen Show.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you again for your loyalty and your listening. It's very much appreciated.